0: This is our Wednesday night deep dives this is what we do on every Wednesday we come in jump straight into the word Um, and so it's sure to be good we are so glad to have Bill and Tracy with us tonight you can give them a hand that's okay we got to do some hanging out today and uh, just spend some time talking and just praying and showing what's going on around here y'all ready all right, let's pray and get in it. Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for who you are and what you our in life. We glorify and magnify you. You are wonderful, glorious, grand, holy, righteous, just. You love us more than we could ever even love ourselves. And so, Father, today, we thank you for this opportunity just to receive the Word. We, we receive it as a great gift from you, Lord. And we thank you, Father, for all you're doing in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. Amen. Well, Bill, are you ready, brother? Well, let's give Bill a hand as he comes and just jumps right in. On?
1: On Yay. It has been a long time since I've been in here. I think it's since before 2020, so um, good to see everybody. Good to be back. Hear that familiar echo in this lovely domed room? <laughs> Always makes you feel like you're preaching to about ten thousand people, doesn't it? There you go. Yeah, like a stadium sound in here. Uh yeah. Well, if uh, if you got Bibles, go with me to uh, Psalm 22 tonight. I I don't know why I just had this on my heart today, and uh, I told Brandon, "So you ever talk about this?" And he goes, "Oh yeah, yeah, I talk about this a lot. I mentioned this a bunch." And and so uh, it's going to take me a little while to get there, but it's all right. We got four or five, six hours. To... <laughs> uh, let's see. Is my wife in here? She must have taken a phone call, either that or she's still setting up the resources out there. <laughs> uh, you'll get a chance to meet her and say hi to her in just a second if you haven't already. Uh, I. Uh, we're in such an amazing time right now. Uh, oh my goodness, what a what a season we're in! And of course, everybody is watching uh, what's going on in Israel. It's a big deal. Uh, I don't. If you listen to me at all on politics or anything like that, I don't have a lot to say about politics. I just don't. I preach the kingdom of God. Okay, I understand that. That's, that's super. That's the highest priority to me. During the whole political season, when there's my wife Tracy, hello. Um, oh, can you grab a couple of grab a couple of books? Uh, during the political season, when things were at an all-time fever pitch, I caught a lot of heat because all I kept talking about was Jesus and the kingdom, and uh, the reason for that is because every time I sat down to to study and to pray. Uh, I, as much as anybody, had both opinions and prayers about everything that was going on in the, in the nation at the time, and, uh, and every time I sat down to, to pray about it, I feel like the Lord said, preach the gospel, Bill, Come on. like, hey, 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 and then one day I began to realize that Jesus Christ knew everything about everything, like like, there was, thanks, he, there was all kinds of crazy conspiracies going on in Jesus' day. Mm-hmm. And he knew about all of them. He knew about the ones that nobody knew about. And yet, when the guy who knows everything gets up to speak, what does he say? The kingdom is like, the kingdom is like. He consistently drew people's attention to, to the Father. And so I thought, okay, that's, that's my model, right? Uh, but this past Saturday... Uh, I suddenly had this overwhelming sense that god God has kept waking me up in the night with words about what 's been going on, and, and really just kind of an understanding I think a little bit just for myself uh, of of how to pray what direction to pray and we are we are seeing uh, right now a sibling rivalry that 's been going on for you know over four thousand years um, and if you 've been in, in the scriptures in the church for a long time, you know this Abraham. A friend of God goes out in the middle of the night with the Lord. You know, late at night, he looks up at the stars. God says, these are all your kids. Abraham's got no kids. And he's like, I'm old. Nothing works anymore. How's this even going to happen? He goes home, tells Sarah about it. Sarah laughs at God. We know that. That's kind of weird. Um, and And then Abraham comes up with the worst idea. Abraham and Sarah come up with the worst idea in human history. You know, God needs help. To perform his word (laughs) so (laughs) Sarah gives Abraham an idea and he's like all right you know father of faith you know and uh so you have Hagar and Ishmael or as Hebrew says the son of the slave woman and you have Sarah and Isaac the son of the free woman these two brothers uh are never going to get along without Jesus understand never going to get along matter of fact speaks of uh, Israel and uh, his descendants in I believe it's Genesis sixteen two. said he will be a wild donkey of a man we have children in the room so I can't read the King James version of that you know what I mean though so you'll be a wild donkey of a man and uh, every man's hand will be against him and he will even fight with his brothers so, surrounding tiny little Israel, you got you got Egypt, you got Jordan, you got Lebanon, you got Syria, all the Iraq, you got all these nations right around this tiny little country. All children of Ishmael surrounding the children of Isaac, who have nowhere else to go, but the the housing equivalent of a closet. And uh, and so you wonder what in the world is going on here in this in this day we're just seeing we're seeing a sibling rivalry that's been playing out longer than all of us have been alive you know when jesus showed up on the scene he came to not and this is just this is me talking here he came not to replace israel with the church he came to graft us into a new and living way whereby he's it's not about nations anymore it's about family understand that's what god's doing god is creating family Jesus called the firstborn of many brethren. If God was creating something other than family, he would not have called himself father. Did you hear that? And so Jesus looks at the sons of Isaac, and he looks at the sons of Ishmael, both of which, by the way, he promised to bless and make great, great nations of them. That doesn't go away, even in, in the context of the new covenant. The family element only gets heightened as God in Christ brings us together through both blood and the spirit right we are adopted into this and we are bled into this 2,000 years ago humanity bled into one on the cross <laughs> Godfrey yeah 2,000 years ago we bled into one yeah. and uh whoo and uh and we are we are so honored as both Jew and Gentile to be able to share a father Isn't that great And how Jesus has completely upended the whole apple cart of religion. And, uh, ah, my goodness. Couldn't be happier with the way the gospel has impacted my life and people all over the world continues to. The power of God continues to flow. Uh, We we saw just uh, three nights ago, a guy hadn't walked in years in a wheelchair. Got up out of that wheelchair and started walking. Nobody laid hands on him crazy it just happened so easy happened so easy I was preaching on the breath of God the wind of God and how easy you understand (laughs) it's just a fresh word we I was doing a conference called the wind conference so you know I actually had to really work hard not to do a session on do having a breaker anointing I wanted to call my session breaking wind (laughs) See, I knew a handful of you would appreciate that, <laughs> but I didn't, I didn't know these folks real well and I thought maybe they're a little, little religious around here, so maybe I'll just. <laughs> so, uh, but understand, you know, when, when we come into Christ, we make it so complicated <laughs> In Romans uh, 5, I think it's 517, I believe, it speaks of us as having received grace, those who have received grace. And the word received there is an incredibly passive word. It's the same word that Paul uses when he talks about in Corinthians having received 39 blows to his body. I mean, how much work did Paul do to, to get those blows to his body? None. He just made himself available. He was forced to make himself available. And then he just did nothing while the guy with the whip did all the work. It's the same received as Romans 5 talks about us having received grace. or you, So you could say it like this. We receive grace like a boxer receives a blow to the head. <laughs> so you just take it. I mean, you're here tonight. You stepped in the ring tonight. So what do I do? You're in the right spot. You know, you stepped into the boxing ring. Now the boxer doesn't have to run at his opponent and slam his head into his opponent's glove over and over again. That's not the way the thing works. He just puts himself in position to receive and then just waits. <laughs> Bam! Well, let's just take the violent imagery out of it altogether. I know, it's a terrible analogy. Nicodemus comes to... I'm sending my message tonight, but we got time. Nicodemus comes to Jesus by night and he says... We know you're a teacher come from God because nobody can do these things that you do except God is with him. Leads to Jesus saying the famous verse, you must be born again. That single verse that Jesus spoke to that one guy has become the cornerstone, the litmus test for who's in, who's out. Are you born again? Which has led to an entire branch of theology called soteriology, which asks the question, how do you get born again? Well, let's just carry the conversation on with Nicodemus and see if we can find an answer. Nicodemus immediately defaults to, what do I do? This is the way he says it. He goes, are you kidding? What are you talking about? How can I be born when I'm old? What are you talking about? Crawl in my mother's womb a second time and be born? He's being facetious almost. He's, his intelligence is insulted by this statement. And Jesus responds by talking about the air. He says, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound thereof but you can't even tell where it's come from or where it's going so is everyone who is born of the spirit don't marvel that i said to you you must be born again see we as preachers have taken that verse and we have lifted it out of context for years to talk about how to live life in the spirit and it's true we live as though the wind of the spirit fills the sail of our life and moves us i get that right but the context of the conversation is, you must be born again. And Nicodemus going, "What do I do?" And Jesus goes, "Don't complicate it. It's like the wind." It's Jesus is in a sense saying, "Being born again, Nicodemus, is as effortlessly mysterious as understanding the wind." Oh, let me just let me break it down like this: Being born again is a breeze. How about that <laughs> I know. so so what we've done is we've we've I mean, we always have to add to it we just do you know I mean seriously I feel like I feel like every time you like you step outside every time you feel the wind on your skin it's a testimony to the grace of God how do you receive the wind just breathe in Jesus said, "Freely you've received, freely give. We are not made just to receive and hold on to it forever." Come on. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody, do me a little experiment. Let's do an experiment. Take a breath. <gasps> now breathe out. <sighs> Which one of those was a breath? Both. Both. But something amazing happened. You just had a little miracle happen right here. You took a substance into your body that inside of you was changed, was transformed from one thing into another. And what you released from inside of you now is gone out into the world to be able to actually bring life to the world around you, which in turn will change it into something you need. You and I, without even thinking about it, live a cycle of giving and receiving thousands of times a day, and we don't even have to think about it. Some people go, some people in the, in the Spirit, all they do is... <clears throat> Inhale. Stop and think about this. If, if you decide one day, I don't like exhaling, I only inhale. Well, congratulations. Your lifespan is now about three and a half minutes. Same is true in the spirit. You can tell I'm not a cessationist, right? <laughs> I think anything that God pours into us that we take in has got to find a way to get out. To bring life to the world around us. That's the deal. So be super careful in here tonight, because what I all of the heresy that I just dump into you guys tonight, <laughs> it's got to find a way to get out. Life that life that you receive on the inside of you is transformed into what the world around you needs. It's the deal. So we we give and receive. Okay. Uh, I, I have some resources back there. I've always been a little. If Tracy doesn't remind me to, to talk about this stuff, I never get it done, and so in the name of capitalism, we're just going to talk about this for half a second. Um, if you need a good solid brainwashing, this right here will do the trick. Uh, <laughs> I don't know why I'm saying it like that, but anyhow, um, <clears throat> this, uh, this book unveiled Horizon Reflections on the Nature of God's, the most dangerous book I've ever written. When uh, I started writing it, Many, many years ago, I wrote it with the intention of sharing it with only one crowd, and that is my grandchildren. Wrote it with them in mind. And uh, this comes from time in the secret place with God. Time in the secret place with God is where God begins to converse with you and challenge your theology a little bit. He challenges the boundaries that I put on his goodness. He challenges the limits I've placed on his power. He challenges everything that I believe about him, and I always want him to answer all my questions, but instead, God seems insistent on questioning all my answers, and then leaving me with more questions than I started with. Anybody know what I'm talking about? So the longer I go in this thing, the less I know. That's why I like to say, it would have been so great if y'all had met me 20 years ago when I knew everything. Now it's like, I love this statement, I don't know. So, uh, I, I wasn't sure whether I believed half the stuff I read wrote in here, but it was, it was a book written beyond my own understanding in a way that challenged me. This was, these are answers to questions I had with God that uh, he dropped into my spirit, and they still, if I read it now, the chapters are only like a page or two long, so you can like knock out three or four chapters in one bathroom sitting. Um, <laughs> it's kind of gross, isn't it? But uh, I I released this book without any marketing money or fanfare behind it, unlike all the other books I've written. I just put this one out super quiet because I was a little afraid of it. And uh, in about two weeks, it hit number one on Amazon in four categories, including New Age Meditation. I did not see that coming, did not see that coming. Well what ended up happening is it got into a new age crowd and they started passing it around and sending links to each other. Next thing I know, new agers are picking this thing up left and right and getting reintroduced to Jesus, which was awesome. So I invite you to pick up a new age bestseller on the way out tonight. Didn't expect to hear that in church tonight, did you? There's a number of USB thumb drives back there. There's a 24-hour one on identity I've had for years. One called Walking in the Power in the Presence of the Holy Spirit, which is on spiritual joy fare. Yay, fun. Not warfare, joy fare. Have more fun, get more done, because demons hate joy, and religious people do too. Uh, there's a 10-hour teaching called Restoring Revelation. Everything I teach is from the perspective of this side of the cross. That's the New Covenant. And, uh, yeah, Revelation. Revelation can be the happiest book you've ever read in your entire life. It's so true. And that'll show you how. Um, this one is brand new. It's 18 hours long. It's called The Kingmaker. Should be called the uh, New Covenant or the Christic Covenant, but we had a lot of Kingmaker stickers, so we changed the name to match the stickers that we had. So it's called The Kingmaker. Uh, it's, uh, I, I'm, I'm firmly convinced, as I travel and have been for many, many years, That the body of Christ, by and large, has received new covenant salvation by grace through faith, but we live old covenant in our relationship with God. What do I mean by that? Uh, Salvation for many people who has got your ticket stamped for heaven. You said the right prayer, and so now you can go to heaven when you die, because now you made Jesus your Lord and Savior, as if he wasn't already. You made him. So, I know, I know, I'm being ornery, sorry. I just, I just want to make you think, that's all. So, um, so uh, <laughs> but when it comes to a relationship with God, many people that have been sitting in church for years live as though God's about to drop the hammer on them at any moment. Because we take our our lesson in the character and nature of God, not from the risen Christ, but from a picture of God, during 1,300 years when Israel didn't want to hear his voice, yeah. Yeah. okay? Understand, it, it, when God gave Israel the law, when he gave them the law in Exodus chapter 19 and chapter 20, when, when the nation of Israel saw God's power, they got so scared then Exodus chapter 20, verse 19, they say to, to Moses, Moses, God is terrifying. We don't ever want to hear him speak again. Like we still want him to be our God, but you go talk to him, and then you come back and tell us what he says. And Moses responds and says, guys, you don't understand. God is doing this to test you so that you would not sin. The word sin there is the word shatah, which means to lose yourself. In other words, When we sin, we are adopting a false identity that God never gave us. We are acting out an identity God never meant for us to act out. And so God is basically telling these people, I want you to be joined to me as a kingdom of priests. But they're so slave-minded in their mentality that they can't see themselves as sons or royalty or able to come before the face of their father, even though that's how we were even birthed in the first place. And so here, you have them say, we don't ever wanna hear God speak again, even though we want him to be our God. So it's kinda of like standing at an altar of marriage and saying to your spouse, I do. Now never talk to me again. How good is that relationship gonna be? So for 1,300 years, listen to this, God actually obeys their request. Let's say obeys. He capitulates to their desire. And that is that they don't ever wanna hear his voice again, And so he doesn't talk except to prophets and individuals who want to hear his voice and small children as they're sleeping. Things like that. He talks to individuals, but he does not speak corporately for 1,300 years until Jesus Christ comes out of the waters of baptism. And suddenly you hear the voice of God. This is my beloved son. One area he's well pleased and the other one God says, hear him listen to him what's the big deal about Jesus he is the Hebrews 1 3 the exact representation of the father's nature he said I and the father are one he goes guys if you've seen me you've seen the father Colossians 2 9 and 10 in Christ in Christ the fullness of the Godhead father son holy spirit the fullness of the Godhead dwell in that body and then it says, In Him you have been made complete. Everybody say complete. complete. It's a big word, it's a huge word. Okay, so in Christ you see God fully represented. We'll talk about this tonight. <clears throat> 2 Corinthians 5 talks about how God was right there in Christ reconciling the world to Himself. So Jesus fully and completely is representing the heart of the Father. So I love to say, listen, we have a lot of ideas about God that don't look like Jesus. Okay? I love talking to atheists, and this is the question I like to ask. Would you please tell me about the God you don't believe in? And they never describe Jesus. They always describe something that looks nothing like Jesus. And by the time they get done talking, I go, (laughs) wow, I'm an atheist too. So i don't believe in that god either why because that, that looks nothing like jesus and listen if every revelation we got of god from the old testament was adequate enough to give us clarity we wouldn't have needed jesus to show up and fix it we had a broken perspective of god and jesus came to reveal it he reveals it in in the the story of the prodigal son um, we all know this one it's been around for a while in the story of the prodigal son, Jesus tells the story of a certain man has two sons. The point is the two sons in the heart of the father, prodigal sons, and it's an allegory. So you got to understand that Jesus is including every detail on purpose, really important. And so the certain son, he takes, it, goes, God, or he says, he says, dad, I want, I want my inheritance now, which, when do you ask for an inheritance? When somebody dies. So it's like going to your dad and going, hey, you know what? It'd be really convenient for me financially if you were dead. How dishonoring is that? Right? So dad goes, you want your money now? Okay. Stop and think about this. Does father not know what the kid's about to go do with it? Like it would be a thing to protect him from himself by not granting him the request. It seems like bad parenting. You understand God trusts you more than you trust you listen to this god gives trust like he gives grace freely i told my kids one day i said it's a good thing uh you know a good thing mom and i love you unconditionally but understand our love is conditional but trust and respect those are earned and i felt the lord say it's nice sounding bill but it's really a good thing for you i don't think that way and i was like i'm sorry what And I began to realize he gives trust away as freely as he gives grace away. I mean, how crazy is that? And so he gives the the, the young man his money, and the young man takes off. And he wastes it. You guys remember the story, he comes to the end of himself. The reality is he has nowhere else to go. It's not even repentance. He just says, I'm either in this hog pen, or I'm going to go home and work for my dad. But I can't be a son, and this is the danger of sin. See, sin, or a choice to live self-centered, didn't change the father. It didn't change how the father saw the son. This is for somebody in the room tonight. It didn't change how the father saw the son. It just warped the son's perception of himself and the son's perception of the father. That's the danger of sin. Sin will warp your perception of you, and it will warp your perception of God. Right? Right? And so the son finds himself at the end of his rope, he's in the hog pen, and then he finally goes, I'm going home. Now when he comes home, the only guy waiting for him is dad. And Jesus strategically tells us this, as the father leaps off the porch, he's got the robe, the ring knows exactly where they are, he doesn't have to go find them, he knows exactly where they are before the son can even get his repentant speech out of his mouth. The Father has already hugged him, kissed him, restored him. (laughs) Many of you thought that when you came to Christ and you prayed the prayer that the Father was like, I guess, I guess I detect enough sincerity in their tone (laughs) to receive you back. In the early church, the writings of the early church, especially in the first four centuries, when it speaks of how they came to faith in Christ or how their life was changed or transformed, you get some really interesting realities. One is that the gospel is never here to serve you. It's here to change you, to transform you. Encounter the gospel, you're changed and transformed. So they all speak with this tone. When you ask, like, if, if you're asking somebody from the early church, how'd you get saved or how'd you come to Christ, it always begins with Jesus. Jesus did, Jesus saved, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. It's him. Somehow in the last 2,000 years, things have changed. Now we ask people, how did you get saved? It always begins with the same word, I. Yes. You did, I did, I prayed, I went, I heard, I, I, I. Somewhere the work of Christ has become the work of us. Come on. And if we did enough work and we did the right work, then maybe Jesus will receive you. The prodigal son tries his best not to be a son, but the father never stops being a father. Yeah. And the father is never confused about the son's identity. Yeah. He knows exactly who the son is, even if the son doesn't know who he is. Yeah. Yeah. And so here comes the son. He comes home. The fa- Again, this is not even what I'm talking about tonight. But the father receives him, grabs him, and, and says, strike up the band, light up the barbecue, let's have a party. And now there's music and dancing, and the son's back home. And the only guy who doesn't like it is the older brother who pulls dad aside and decides to lecture him on his parenting and tell him about his own achievements. These many, lo, these many years I've served, you've never done this so that I can have a party with my friends. And the father comes back with a statement that ought to rock us all to our core. When he looks at the elder brother and says, all that I have is yours. In other words, everything you're angry about not receiving has always been available. What did the older brother not know? The father's heart. I had a question for the older brother. If I could ask him a question, if he actually existed, and I could ask him a question, I'd say, hey, how come you let the father run alone? I mean, how come you let the father stand there and watch the horizon by himself? And how, how come the father was only the, the only one in the family that ran out to meet that boy? It's curious. Oh, and I would also wonder, uh, and this is just a question for all of us. I you know, think we can all identify with both brothers on some level, depending on how long you've been in church. When that younger brother came home, who would make it hard for him to stay in the house? Think about it. I mean, the father is just showing love. He's showing grace. He's restoring that kid back to his identity. But how how many of you know when the party is over and the older brother gets the younger brother alone, you can just imagine the conversation they might have as that older brother goes, you know, dad acts like he's happy with you right now, but you gotta understand, he is really upset. I mean, he's glad that you're home, and so you're seeing this side of him But inside, he's really disappointed. And I know it looks like he's restored you and everything, but just understand, he's really, he's so mad at you. And you, you didn't see all the days that he stood out there just watching the horizon. We had to live with him. Well, he waited for you. And if you actually want to make things right and you think you belong here, maybe you should work really hard to pay back all that you squandered. Now, this isn't in the Bible, but if you've ever been a prodigal and you've come home, you've felt this. And if you've ever been an elder brother and seen a prodigal come home, you may have thought this. We're going to wait and we're going to watch to see whether they actually belong in the house. And what ends up happening is if we don't, listen to this, because this is the core of what I'm talking about tonight. If we don't know the heart of the Father and represent the Father well, we can end up misrepresenting the heart of the Father to people who still haven't locked in to the love of God. And we can actually make people question whether or not the grace of the Father is actually real. Or if behind the scenes, he's ready to drop the hammer on him at any moment. He just really wants to. Like he's acting good right now, but at any moment he's just... And this is Old Covenant relationship with God. What was Jesus telling this story to Israel for? He was telling this story to them because they were confused about what the Father's like and he's trying to represent the Father well. We we all talk about the finished work of the cross, and I know this is a big subject for you guys around here. Have you ever heard of the finished work before the cross? There's a finished work that Jesus speaks of that happens before the cross ever takes place. And it's in John chapter 17, verses 4 and 6. John 17, 4, Jesus says, Father, I have finished the work that you gave me to do by glorifying your name on the earth. In other words, I put your identity on display perfectly and accurately to a really confused people. Jesus goes on to say, as the Father sent me, I send you in John 20. 1 John 4, 17 says, as he is, so are we in this world. If we have one mandate in this life, it's to put the Father's heart on display accurately to a broken world. So that there's not even a question about his love, not even a question about his grace. His love and his grace is not dependent upon your worthiness. Apart from Christ, it is Christ alone that makes you worthy. Period. Christ alone. If it was up to us, we'd all be in serious trouble. <laughs> Woo, thank you, Jesus, for your grace. That equally gives us a seat at the table. I, I love, uh, I grew up so, so many times thinking of God as a distant king sitting on a throne out of reach. I've come to realize that he's a father at a, ta- at a table and inviting you and I to sit with him and feast on his goodness. There's no hidden agenda of rage behind those eyes of fiery, consuming love. Mm-hmm. That's so good. <laughs> Woo, can we just take a moment and just thank him for his grace? Thank you, Jesus, for your grace. Thank you, Jesus, for your grace and your goodness. Thank you that you've made us worthy. Thank you that you made us worthy. Thank you, Jesus. We love you, Jesus. Yeah. Maybe the greatest sinner's prayer you could ever pray is just to inhale grace and exhale thank you. You know? (laughs) Just to thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. It's a fascinating lesson in giving and receiving. You can't speak a word unless you draw something in. You can't give out from the abundance of your heart. You can't speak out of the abundance of your heart unless you draw something in that you need to live. Romans 10, 9 and 10. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes unto righteousness. The word believe just simply means to think to be true. In other words, in my heart I hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and I just, I don't even know how to receive it. So what do I do? <gasps> Take what I've heard on the outside and let it be transforming on the inside. And then say, Jesus, you are Lord. And the crazy thing is by the time you get around to saying the words you've already received in your heart. (laughs) We just like the words. It's so great to fill the atmosphere with the words. It's worship. But it's not a one-time thing. It's a lifestyle of releasing a sound of gratitude from inside of your being for out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. Oh, that's fun. All right, all right, all right, Psalm 22, let's just, let's, uh, let's get into it. <laughs> Before I get there, I want to tell you a little history lesson. We're going to do some history tonight. This may not be fun for you, but it is fun for me, and I enjoy this. Say, one of those bottles of water, open season, can I have one of those? I don't know, either one? Oh, great, perfect. Ah. Uh, I'm always really fascinated with early church stuff. And these days I'm reading about 75 books. Actually, literally I'm reading like 12 books right now, but I've downloaded 75 out of about 13,000 books that the Orthodox Church has released in about the last six or seven years um, from their vaults of early Christian life. And uh, I'm, I'm just so enamored with some of this stuff because I begin to realize when I read the first three centuries of Christianity, I'm reading stories of people who grew up in a time when it was illegal to be a Christian, and you could die for believing in Jesus, okay, uh, and that's a huge deal to me. It's like I, I think, man, these guys were like 300 years. People in Christ, the body of Christ, suffered persecution on an unimaginable level for longer. And talking about globally speaking, for longer than than our nation has been a, a nation a long time. And in that time, these people are turning the world upside down. But as I begin to read about some of the studies, there's books about the sayings of the Desert Fathers, a chapter in there called The Fathers Who Wrought Wonderful Works, Manifestations from the Early Church. There's tons of different books out there right now that are written some of the early church writings. And and you get these crazy stories, like one of my favorites is a guy named Abasioses. Abasioses is out in the, in the field with some of his disciples, some young men around him who are gleaning in the field and working uh, with the crops. And here comes this woman, she's weeping. And uh, Abasioses says, what's, what's the matter with, with you? And she says, my husband died. He had took a loan out from a stranger. Now this man wants either the money or he's going to take me and my children he's going to take and put them into slavery. And... Uh, And he says, well, take me to where you lay your husband. And so she took him to her husband's body, and he calls out to the dead man and says, of such a one, where is the money that you have borrowed from the stranger? And the dead man answers and says, it's underneath the leg of the table in my house. And Abasiosi says, thank you. Now sleep until your appointed resurrection. (laughs) So you you go, wait a minute, hang on a second. Theologically, that messes me up a little bit because wait—you raised him up and then you put him down again, like, which begs a question. Maybe I mean, maybe she didn't want him back. Maybe, maybe she just wanted the money. Maybe it was like, you want him back? No, just give me the money and then we we'll just we'll move on. <laughs> but but it's raising this one story out of hundreds. Raising the dead in the early church was not an uncommon thing. Not uncommon. That's how common it was. We just need to ask you a question. Up and down. (laughs) The the disciples around him all fall down in fear. And obviously, he says to them, do not marvel because of this. For God has worked this miracle for the sake, not because of me, but for the sake of this widow and the orphans. But if you want to please God, understand that what God believes is great is a soul that is pure. And he goes on to teach them about the grace of Christ. And you're like, that's, that's the great thing in this guy's mind. There's another story of a guy named Abba Manilius who, who uh, is walking along and he sees a man uh, arresting uh, a little monk. And, and this monk goes, I didn't kill this man. I didn't kill this man. And uh, Abba Manilius says to him, what happened? He says, uh, th- there's a body by my house and they say that I murdered this man and I didn't kill him. And he says, well, let's go... Let's go Talk to the man. So he goes and prays and raises the murdered man from the dead and says, tell us who killed you. And he says, I went to go give a sum of money to the church and the elder slew me and laid me in the habitation of this monk. And I entreat you that the goods that I have given to the church may be given to these people over here. That's a great way to solve a murder. Let's just go go ask the murdered man who killed you. You know the most common miracle that the early church saw? In writings of the Desert Fathers, the most common miracle or manifestation of the Spirit upon these people's lives in a a supernatural sense was that it was said that these people would read and write and work in the evenings at night by the glow of their own countenance. Apparently, they took, when Jesus said, you are the light of the world, they took that Seriously. Okay, so I'm reading this, and I'm going, "Okay, God, you've got to tell me what in the world was going on here in the first three centuries, that life was like this for believers in Jesus." Have we just like grown so knowledgeable and intellectual in this day that 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 we, we we've kind of lost something in a sense? I think so. We we have a tendency to make everything complicated. In the old covenant. God gave 10 commandments. We inflated that to 613 laws. And when Jesus showed up, he didn't give us a high five and say, way to go. Way to complicate that. He strips everything back down to himself. With a simple, it is finished, he rips the veil between the holy of holies and humanity. So you go, okay, did that let God out or did it let man in? And the answer is yes. (laughs) Removed every barrier of distance and separation between us and God. Give us a revelation of this union, this amazing union that we have with Christ, where the Spirit of God that inhabited the Holy of Holies and rested on the Ark of the Covenant between the cherubim, the Shekinah glory of God, now takes up residence in you. And now his identity becomes our inheritance as he changes you from just a a, a meat puppet to be— that's a terrible phrase, isn't it? To being, to being a living, breathing, walking ark of the new covenant. Because of the Spirit of God dwelling within you, and because you're made in the image and likeness of Christ, you're more the holy of holies than the room in the temple ever was. It's who you are. So we have a tendency to complicate things, and I think we've done the same thing with the new covenant they did with the old covenant. Jesus gave, him, him, gave us himself, his blood, we, he gave us his Holy Spirit to fill us, and now we've just made things really complicated where we have all kinds of theological arguments and debates pretty much constantly going on, 46,000 registered denominations in the United States alone. It's inflating every year as we just continue to divide more and more and more, Okay. So, so I look at the first three centuries of Christianity, and there's some things you need to understand about the first three centuries. It, you know, we were tortured publicly for sport. And you ever wonder how that happens? People will say, well, we were, you know, the, the entire Roman culture was just given over to demonic influence. And I don't doubt that that was possibly the case, but it's even deeper than that. All you got to do is just read the news of the day. I mean, for the first three centuries, first thing that happened is that us as Christians, we were called atheists. You know that? We were called godless atheists. And the reason was because we didn't have temples, we didn't have idols, and we claimed to worship a man who we said was God. That made us godless atheists by the religious standards of Rome. So, Already, we're a threat because we're not following the party line here. And then, what do these people do when they gather? Well, we know that they call their meetings love feasts. Godless atheists who celebrate love feasts, that sounds immoral. So, we're godless, we're atheists, and we're immoral. Oh, it gets even worse. Somehow, one of our meetings gets infiltrated, and it's said that we pretend. To eat the flesh and drink the blood of the man who we claim is God. So, we're godless, immoral atheists who eat flesh and drink blood. Woo! Gets even worse. A plague hits Rome, tens of thousands of children are abandoned. What happened? Christians did the right thing, they took those children into their homes, rescued them off the streets. Romans didn't like that. They said these Christians, godless, immoral, bloodthirsty, uh, flesh eaters, cannibals, they're taking our children and using them in their rituals, right? You didn't take—in worship in in Greek and Roman culture, you had to be of a certain age to worship these gods— we let children worship Jesus and taught them to do so. So we include them in the meetings. Now we are, we are worse than, than demonic in their minds. We are inhuman. We have now been de- dehumanized so badly that this entire culture feels like the right thing to do is to exterminate us. And they do. Kill us by the thousands, but the church just continues to grow. Constantine finally goes... These Christians, they love and don't, they love like nobody loves, and they don't fear death. And he's so moved by the gospel, he gives his life to Christ. The persecution stops for the most part, and eventually Christians come into power politically. And it's interesting because when we get power politically, we have a tendency to become the persecutors. Weird how that works, but it does. But here's the deal. For the first 1000 years of Christianity, 1000 years, did you know that there's no such thing as atonement theory? It doesn't exist. The church by and large believes, preaches and teaches that the cross of Jesus Christ did one simple thing. Conquered sin, death, hell and the devil. Boom 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 done. Jesus Christ was victor over all, and he conquered sin, death, hell, and the devil. And now, in the 11th century, something happens that has never happened before. A guy named St. Anselm, A-N-S-E-L-M, as in mom, St. Anselm, the Archbishop of Canterbury, he comes up with a sermon illustration. He has an idea because he wants to make sure that his fellow english countrymen including the peasants the simple-minded peasants that they understand what god is like so he comes up with an illustration and for the first time in a thousand years a new idea forms that had never been articulated before on this scale and that is he says god is like a feudal lord The feudal system, lords and nobility, they had something called honor. And anybody could offend a lord's honor at any moment. It was very fragile. Like his ego, right? And if his honor was offended, the lord did not have the power to just forgive the offender. Can't do that. No, no. What you have to do if you're a lord is you demand payment and punishment for the offense. And Anselm said, ah, this is like God. He's like a feudal lord. He has honor. It's called holiness. And your sin has offended his holiness. He demands payment and punishment. So enter Jesus, who comes to be the payment and take the punishment for our sin. And people go, yeah, that sounds great. It's a gospel I grew up with. But understand, Anselm began a domino fall of complications. And he did two really important things when he preached that message. The first thing he did, two important and dangerous things, the first thing he did is he fundamentally changed the definition of sin. He added something to sin. Now, sin was a legal and financial matter that required payment and punishment. Prior to that, sin was seen as a, listen, medical matter spiritually speaking it was a medical matter that required healing that's why jesus when he's hanging out with sinners and the religious crowd goes what are you doing man jesus goes look the sick need a what a doctor the sick need a doctor in other words they have a disease it's called sin and i am the cure and people look at it and go well jesus never condemned sinners yeah, any more than you would condemn or make fun of people in a cancer ward. He looks at people who are dying with the disease of sin and says, "This is a medical issue. It's going to require a blood transfusion." Yeah. James 5:16 says, "Confess your sins or faults one to another and pray one for another, what? That ye may be healed." Healed. It's an issue of healing. So Anselm does something where he now has moved the definition of sin to include payment punishment because now it's debt language, it's financial language, which begs the question, people start going, wait a minute, so what do I do? Because you don't, we don't have the power to heal ourselves, oh, but we can do some paying and we can take some punishment. Matter of fact, religion loves punishment, right? It's like spiritual sadomasochism. It's like the worse it hurts, the better it has to be for me, right? So so what ends up happening is that the church starts going, uh, excuse me, um, what do we do? Now, now, this begs new questions for the church that they never had before because, see, once you got baptized, it covers and deals with your sins, past, present, and future. It's just a done deal. It's like you're in Christ, and now old things pass away, all things become new. It's a beautiful world now, and, and it, now we've got, a new, we've got a new opportunity the church sees for fundraising. So they got a new rule, and the rule goes like this. <clears throat> all of your sins... From baptism back are forgiven but not the new ones the new ones you have to pay for and be punished for and punishment comes in the form of payment so you sin it's going to cost you and then the fundraiser expanded right now you could prepay for sin like hey uh, it's saturday's coming up I got some sinning I plan on doing. It's like a prepaid phone plan. You're just like, I'm just going to go ahead and like drop by the church and drop off some money because I plan on doing some sinning this weekend. How convenient does that sound, right? And then it gets even crazier. They start expanding the fundraiser to include this. You know, how good was grandma, really? I mean, maybe she had some hidden sin in her life. Maybe she's flying coach if you give some money, you can bump her up to business class, you know? I mean, now you're paying not just for your sins, the ones you've committed since baptism, you're paying for your future sins because spring break's coming up, and now you're also paying for your dead relative sins. So if you go to Europe now, and you go and look at these massive grand cathedrals and you're like, wow, they don't make them like they used to. You gotta understand, all of those buildings were paid for by a ton of sinning. <laughs> people, people catch me all the time talk about, Denise does this from years ago. People say, Bill, you preach on that grace, that greasy grace. You've given people licenses to sin. I say, I've never, I've never given a license to sin. People are sinning just fine all on their own. Nobody ever asked me permission. Not only that, not only that, I would never give a license to sin. I would sell those things. You know how, you know how much that would be worth? I'd be like, I, I just printed off 10 cent licenses back here. They're going to the highest bidder. The ink is still wet. You know, it's like, come on. It wouldn't be a new idea. It's already been done. The church built tons of buildings on that. What ended up happening, listen, understand, it's not, it's not that we changed the gospel, it's that we watered down and diluted the power of the cross, so now the church stopped believing that the cross of Christ actually did what the cross did, which one of the, is also one of the reasons why people are constantly crying out for Jesus to hurry up and show up again which I believe in the second coming of Christ, I'm looking for the return of Jesus, absolutely. But understand, he already won the battle, right? Right? He already won the victory. But these days what I hear is a lot of people crying out for Jesus to come because they're disappointed with the Jesus that came. They don't believe the cross actually worked. So the first thing that... The Anselm did is he changed the definition of sin. The second thing he did was he took the cross and instead of defeating the enemies of sin, death, hell, and the devil, he turned the cross and aimed it squarely at God. Now, God was your problem. And Jesus came to rescue you from the Father. Uh Uh-huh. Now, oh, the Father wants to drop the hammer on you but jesus goes please dad don't hurt him i'll step in and take their place and so the father murders his son to redeem you you're like but doesn't the bible teach that isaiah says he was he was stricken and smitten of god and afflicted no that's not what it says isaiah says We esteemed him. He's prophesying how we're going to respond to what Jesus is going to do. And he says, we esteemed him, stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. In other words, when you see Jesus dying, you're going to think it's the Father doing it. But Paul makes clear in 2 Corinthians 5 that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. Why is this a big deal? Because if you don't know that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are united in your reconciliation, then it feels like you're being adopted or born into a dysfunctional family where God, the Father, is just waiting to drop the hammer on you. The Godhead is not divided in your reconciliation. United in your reconciliation. People go, well, you know, but, but the Father turned his back on the Son. Where do we get that? Where do we get that idea? That the Father turned his back on the Son. Well, I heard it in a hymn somewhere once. It's in hymns, it's in poetry, it's not in the Bible. Ah, oh, yeah, 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 but, but doesn't the Bible say that God, his eyes are so holy he can't look on sin? It's in Habakkuk chapter one. It says, God, God your eyes so holy they cannot look on sin. Read the rest of the verse. It says, so why are you doing it? Your ear is so pure, so why are you listening to... In other words, Habakkuk is expressing the same thing a lot of people express today, and that is a frustration with how good and how gracious God is, because we still haven't gotten it through our head that he is actually kind to evil and ungrateful people. His grace is always going to be scandalous to the religious mind. Always. Now, if you're the kind of person who's done it right your whole life, that's super disappointing to you. But if you're like the rest of us, that's room for shouting right there. That's like, come on. Whoo. There's hope for me. Wow. Come on. Thanks, Jesus. Okay, so we go. Okay, so, so wait, wait, wait a minute, Bill. I thought, is God can't look on sin? If God couldn't look on sin, he would have never gone and looked for Adam and Eve when they sinned. Understand, God is a consuming fire and God is love. The fire of consuming love that's in his eyes, one look from his eyes and your sin is gone. I'm telling you, it's just like, I know who I am when I see my father's face. Why? Because that's how I was born. That's how you and I were born. This thing about breath, that's not just some poetic hyperbole or or metaphor analogy or allegory. That's not what this is. This is a reality of how you and I were born. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, earth without form and void, darkness on the face of the deep. The Spirit of God breathes, hovers over the water, and God breathes the words out over humanity, over all of the cosmos, and says, Let there be light. The entrance of thy word gives light. And what ends up happening? Now, God takes and forms man from the dust and the mud of earth, and the Bible says he breathes into man's nostrils the breath of life. We came to life through divine CPR. What is that word? Yahweh. Yeah. The breath of God, the Holy Spirit of God, the Ruach, the Numa of God. It is the Spirit of God that actually made mud, mud become man and come to life to reflect the image and likeness of our Creator. Yeah. Come on. So we were birthed in a face-to-face encounter with God. Yeah. Yeah. Think about that. This is how we come to life, by breathing in the Holy Spirit. Humanity is alive because the first one of us got filled with the Holy Spirit. We went, and we opened our eyes to have our first conscious experience we ever had. To behold the face of a father who adored us. Who was over the moon about you long before you had the chance to impress him or disappoint him or try to do either. That's how we were born. I was reading a science magazine recently and a secular scientist said, uh, guy doesn't even believe in God, says that the core of our DNA is every memory, not just from our life, but from every ancestor who's come before us all the way back to our common ancestor, which makes me go, that means when I talk about breathing in the Holy Spirit, opening our eyes to behold the face of a delighted father who's seeing in us a mirrored image of his own likeness. And we're looking at him to, in a sense, as we behold him, we're beholding as in a mirror, right? And so, so here, when I talk about that, I think all of us on some level go, that story seems strangely familiar. Why? Because <laughs> you were there. I'll drink to that. So Jesus is hanging on the cross. This is what he says. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, humanity has grabbed a hold of that and went, oh, he turned his back. The Father turned his back on the Son of the Cross. Well, what he was doing, and I'm sure you guys have heard this before, but what he was doing was he was actually quoting Psalm 22.1. Psalm 22.1, if you want to turn there. If you haven't turned there yet, you had like an hour to do it. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from me and far from the words of my groaning? By night, by day, I cry out, but you do not answer. Now, it's, it's the pop hit of the day. The Psalms are the, the songbook of Israel. And so if you quote the first line of a popular song uh, that everybody knows, then certainly you can quote the rest of the song behind it. And, uh, and if you're standing at the foot of the cross you wouldn't be thinking God's turned his back on him. You'd be thinking, why is he quoting Psalm 22? Yep. Are you going through the lyrics in your mind? And you know what's in the middle of Psalm 22? These words, you pierce my hands and my feet, and from my garment you cast lots. Well, that's interesting, because crucifixion hadn't been invented yet. David is writing. Under the unction of the Holy Spirit, David is writing whatever the Lord tells him to put down, and he's sitting there talking about like, you pierced my hands and my feet from my garment. What is this? It makes no sense. David's got to be thinking, this is going to be the weirdest song ever. Like, it says, all my bones are out of joint, which is true. The Bible says his bones weren't broken, but they were out of joint. And so you say, well, Bill, how in the world do we know the father didn't turn his back on the son? Because of Verse 24. Verse 24. You have not abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. But when I cried out, when he cried out, you heard him. God did not turn his back on the son. But here's the thing. There's a big difference between feeling forsaken and being forsaken. Understand? And even on the cross, I believe Jesus is identifying with every moment where we've ever felt forsaken of God. But in pointing to Psalm 22, what he's telling us is this, even in those moments where you have felt forsaken of God, abandoned by God, forgotten by God, trust me, even in those moments, you can hang on to these words, I will never leave you, and I will never forsake you. Even when you feel forsaken, you're not. You're not if you want to see what actually happened on the cross just read the last five verses starting with verse 27 oh my goodness we don't fully believe comprehend or understand the ramifications of what the cross actually accomplished but i can tell you this the psalm 22 finishes with some really cool words it is done it is finished it is done so you start out on the cross with my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You finish with it is finished. Same thing as Psalm 22. It's a prophetic picture of what Christ accomplished and did on the cross. Now understand this, and this is where we're gonna land tonight. I'm gonna we'll open up for some questions, if you got any, which I love Q&A, it's my favorite. So please, if you got questions, I'm wide open to that. Uh, when Jesus on the cross... Did what he did, and pointing to Psalm 22, takes us with him on the cross. Galatians chapter 2 says you got crucified with him. You were there on that cross. Getting crucified with him right taken into the grave with him raised to newness of life with him the vicarious man the last Adam not the second Adam it's not called the second Adam if he was called the second Adam you might think that there was a third there's the first Adam and then there's the last Adam and you and I are in the last Adam listen this is the deal You and I, because of what Christ has done, we're taken through a journey called the cross to learn how to live now a resurrected life. And in this beautiful resurrected life, we still live a journey. It's a journey. I mean, Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega. He's got the end and the beginning pretty much figured out. We live in this weird, mysterious middle, don't we? Kind of bizarre. It's like, man, what's happening here, you know? And yet... Jesus tells us in John chapter 16 verse 33 the things I've spoken to you I've done this so that in me you may have peace now in this world you're going to have trouble I don't like that I don't like everything Jesus said until I read it in context in this world you're going to have trouble but be of good cheer I have overcome the world the key to understanding this is time tenses In this world, you're going to have trouble. You will have trouble. That's future tense. So let's say there's the future. But be of good cheer, I have, past tense, overcome the world. So what is he saying? He's saying, look, in order to understand how this journey works, understand I've already been in your future. And I've already seen every challenge, struggle, difficulty, and trouble that you'll ever have. And I've already placed within you everything necessary to overcome every trouble and emerge victorious on the other side. Yeah. But this is the journey. The, the, the problem is, is I think most of us want Jesus to come in and just take all the troubles away. And that's not what he does. Granted, I think he thwarts the designs of the enemy against our lives all the time I definitely think that we can we can certainly find ourselves in a much much better place and have a much better experience in this life living in surrendered obedience to the voice of the Lord but it doesn't matter if you're Christian or non-Christian suffering is going to find all of us at some point the difference is is when you go through suffering in Christ you're not going through alone and you find a supernatural joy that can actually sustain you in the midst of grief why? Because the joy of the Lord is your strength. It's bigger than happiness. Yeah. The American dream may be the pursuit of happiness, but the promise of the kingdom is an infusion of joy. Yeah. And a joy that nothing can take away. Come on. woo! I never ask for amens, but that's a good place to put one in right there. <laughs> Hallelujah. So we live this beautiful journey with God. Many years ago, a man named James Fowler, a Harvard University uh, professor and, and uh, kind of a closet theologian, wrote a landmark book around 1980 called Stages of Faith. And in that book, he began to detail out what he saw as the journey of many believers, especially in modern history. Because from Anselm until now, by the way, now we have more than a dozen Uh, atonement theories we argue about what the cross actually did and and if the cross actually did anything really at all right so we have an entire branch of theology that thinks that the cross only got you a ticket for the afterlife and then another branch of theology that's like no it's kind of for my whole life so anyway so we complicated it way way complicated too much and when it comes down to it we can simplify this all back to just jesus 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 Okay, <clears throat> But in this life in Christ, Fowler talked about a journey and he, he basically put it through seven stages and he says this, your first stage is that you believe in God. Next stage is that you accept Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior. Next stage, he combined those two. That would be the first stage. Next stage is that you uh, uh, decide to learn the rules of Christianity, and that is figure out the theology of it. What is God like? What is he not like? That's stage two. You're trying to figure out the rules. you learning some scripture here, learning just enough to be dangerous. And then you figure out there are other groups out there that have figured the rules out, and, and they have their own little denominations. I'm going to pick my tribe. Right, And so you step into three. This is my tribe. And all is super great in your tribe until you figure out, not, after, not, after not too long, your tribe got issues. Right? <laughs> know what I'm talking about? It's like, whoa, my tribe believes some weird stuff. Okay. <laughs> you start to realize every tribe's got a little tradition. You know? Yeah. <clears throat> Tribal traditions, sort of, you know, you can either embrace them and just go with it. Uh, or you can go, you know what, I'm backing out of this because maybe there's a tribe has got it better. And so you move from, you know, back to the rules again, get more acquainted with the rules, find another tribe. And a lot of people do the Christian two-step, back and forth, you know, in and out of the tribes. I've been in my lifetime, my, my parents were uh, Nazarene, uh, Wesleyan Methodist, Free Methodist, uh, uh they're part of the holiness movement. They said they only lacked two things, holiness and movement. Otherwise, they had everything covered. <laughs> then dad found the Holy Spirit, got into word of faith, assemblies of God, independent, charismatic. I, I, I was an AG pastor for a dozen years. Uh, huge heart for, for all of the traditions I've been a part of. For three years, I was even a pastor of Wesley, not a Wesleyan church, a, a Presbyterian church, which is like, what in the world were they thinking? I'm not 100% sure. But that was a fun, that was fun. I enjoyed that. Um, so, so I've been in and out of a lot of tribes and, uh, and, and more than that. But, but after a while, when you kind of get tired of the tribalism, you sort of step into what Fowler called stage four, and it's sort of a muddy area. It's like walking a tightrope of disillusionment because you're like, does anybody really know what to believe about this stuff? And, and in this disillusionment you kind of go into a deconstruction and if you can hold on to Jesus you can move from deconstruction to reconstruction otherwise you end up going from deconstruction to destruction and this is where a lot of people just sort of fall off and they like shut the journey down altogether and leave it but if you can hang on to Jesus during this whole time you can just find yourself in Christ and everything gets stripped back down to the simplicity of Christ alone Then you find yourself into what Fowler called stage five, which he called the mystic stage. Now, don't let that freak you out. It's not weird, right? It just means one who is willing to embrace mystery, which means to embrace what you can't really fully understand. And it's in this stage you get really comfortable with the phrase, I don't know. But Jesus, it's really all about Jesus right here. And here's the beauty of this stage. You look back and you start to look at all the tribes and, and start to find the beauty and the treasure that birthed each one. And you can start to actually appreciate this and see a tapestry here. The body just looks beautiful. You know, as in Song of Solomon, there is all we're all together lovely. She is all together lovely. You start to see the loveliness of the body that transcends the tribal. And so now you're not offended by the tribes. You just learn what to celebrate with each one. Right? Right? And, and, and this is the part where Fowler said, I'm a, little, I'm a little fuzzy on this one because he says, I know there's one more stage. He said, and the, the only way I can like determine it is somewhere in stage five, you learn how to demonstrate the love of God. But in stage six, you become love. Amen. The compassion of, of Christ starts to govern everything about your life. And you are literally dead and unoffendable. Thank you, Lord. Good. Thank you, Lord. This is what resurrection life looks like here. And uh, I was thinking about this one day and I thought an analogy, a parable came to mind and the parable goes like this. Once upon a time, we all lived in the desert, and somebody told us about an ocean. An ocean. The ocean's not God. The ocean is Jesus. And within the ocean is the treasure of the Father, a relationship with the Father. There is only one way to the Father, and that is through Jesus. But as a good friend of mine says, Jesus will travel down any path to find you. There are billions of paths to jesus but jesus is the only way that you find the father okay all right so so we hear we're living in the desert and we hear these tales these stories of this ocean and so one day we take a journey and the closer we get we start to smell the air something changes we start to hear the roar of the waves and when we see the ocean something clicks and you run and you let the waves embrace you and you duck underneath the water. You never felt anything like this. You're alive. One day somebody says, this is amazing. But that moment, remember that moment where we entered the ocean? Oh man, we should, we should make that moment so special. We've got to capture that. We've got to create rituals, maybe a ceremony. Something that we say. You know, before they get in the ocean, like, let's just, let's set up a, let's put like a tent up here, and this will be the entrance, like, to the ocean, right? Forget the millions of miles of shoreline, this is the entrance to the ocean. And as you come down here, somebody comes in, and we say, okay, wait, wait, say this first, right? And then now you can go, right? (laughs) Go to the ocean, right? And, And pretty soon, we do what we do as human beings. We notice a line forming, and we get in it because we like lines and pretty soon there's a path it's a well-worn path it's a beautiful path And and we finally go you know we really need to like create something over this path we should build a building or something let's just put and so we raise funds and we put a building over the path and now people come to the building to get into the ocean right Never mind the millions of miles of shoreline, but people come to the building to get into the ocean. And, and once they get into to the building, we go, listen, we should like really expand this ceremony and, and, and we, should like, we should make sure that people know what they're getting into, right? Because the ocean really can't reveal itself. No, we got to we, we explain before they get into the ocean what's about to happen to them. So, so um, we're going to appoint somebody and they're going to talk about the ocean. And then somebody goes, I can write songs. Cool. Can you write about the ocean? Yes, we'll sing all these songs. So people come in, and they start to love the songs. And they start to hear the, the, the talks about the ocean. And, and they hear about it. And they sing about it. And some of them go through and get in. But a lot of them just are content to hear about it and sing about it and leave. know about it. One day, somebody writes a book, The Meaning of the Ocean. Somebody else writes a book, uh, another book, The Deeper Meaning of the Ocean. Somebody else reads both books and disagrees with what both have said and said they didn't go far enough and writes a third book. Pretty soon, hundreds, thousands of books have been written. Somebody says, you know what? This is starting to get confusing. We need to create a new building. We're going to call it a school. And people can come to this school and they can listen to lectures and read all the books on the ocean. And, and, and they can, we'll give them degrees. And those people who have the degrees, those are going to be the ones that actually are the ones who are actually able to, to lead people into the ocean. you got to find somebody who is educated enough to, to actually show you how to get in the water, right? And so next thing you know, with each book, a new building is built next to the old building. Next to the old building, next to the old building. Pretty soon, it's just a line of buildings. You can't even, you can sort of hear the ocean, but you can't even hardly see it anymore because the buildings have covered it all up. And so when you come to the shore, you're going, which building do I go to to get in the ocean? I guess I'll pick the one that has the music that I like. And after being in and out of the building so many times, you're like, I'm going to go to the school. I've got to figure this thing out. <laughs> and pretty soon one day you just decide, you know what? I give up. I'm done. And this is the part where maybe some, some people just bypass it all and go straight to the ocean. But then there's some people that will go back out into the desert because the buildings have become less of a doorway and more of a barrier. And... They stand out in the desert and they just go, I'm just going back to the way it was. But an interesting thing about the ocean is that the ocean has a way of having its substance lifted up into the sky and in clouds, goes out over the desert and starts to sprinkle rain. And one day standing in the desert, disillusioned, upset, mad, the whole system that's been created, you stand out there and you just go, oh, I remember this feeling. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And suddenly God brings back to your mind, oh, I remember where I belong. And you take off and run back by everything else and and you dive straight into the ocean and you're frolicking around. You go down deep and when you get down deep, you begin to realize there's a lot of divers here. There are a lot of people enjoying the ocean. And then one of them says, hey, you want to go and sing together, worship together and hear maybe some things about this life? That we never knew before and they invite you back into a building (laughs) but this time this time when you walk in you see with different eyes and you hear the song sung and you begin to realize the person writing that song only wrote that song because they experienced the ocean, it changed them. And that song is born out of love. Yeah. You look at the building around you and you say, the only reason this building exists is because somebody encountered the ocean and it transformed them. And they decided to create something that would hopefully draw people's attention to it, not repel them from it. Yeah. You hear people's sermons and, and in all of the, the Bible talks about the foolishness of, of even our preaching. That every message is born from a heart that's tasted of the goodness of God and wants people to know this changed my life. And you realize that your judgment is all dropping away against the buildings, the songs, the sermons, the schools, the libraries, all the books. And you begin to realize all of it is a creation from hearts that at the core of their being just wanted Everybody to know that when you immerse yourself in Christ, and Christ is in you and you are in him, it changes everything. And there will be creativity that comes out of you, but it's all meant to draw you beyond, to doorway, to draw you beyond, through the door into something greater to point you to the ultimate door, which is Jesus. And you find yourself living in gratitude at the whole thing. See, you thought it was just going to be a story about how to be judgmental against the church, but it's not. It's a story about the journey that we go on to discover what this whole thing is all about, that it's never been about our buildings, our songs, our sermons, our books, our schools, all of our academia, all of our theology, and all of our degrees. All of it, all along, has been about Jesus Christ alone. And when all of these things have faded and crumbled away to nothing. Christ alone remains. And you in him. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit embracing you in the overflowing waves of his love. No distance, no separation, washed clean because he's that good. Well, stand with me tonight. I think that'll do. Jesus We love you we love you we love you You can just lift your hands all over this room tonight let's just give him praise just see him before you just see him before you just stare right into those eyes listen there's no place where you can imagine where he is not David said there's no place he can't be found just close your eyes for a moment let's just think that is let's just walk through that just with your eyes closed Listen to the words of David from Psalm 139. He says, Lord, you've searched me and you know me. You know every time I sit down. You know every time I stand up. You understand my every thought. You encompass my path and my lying down. You're acquainted with all of my ways. There's not even a word on my tongue, God, but you know it all together. You've hedged me and behind me and before me. You've laid your hand upon me, O God. This knowledge is so wonderful, it's so high, I can't even attain to it. Where can I go to flee from your spirit? How can I possibly even get away from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and I settle in the uttermost part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me and your right hand will hold me. And if I say, surely the darkness will cover me. No, it'll just be like light about me. For it's all the same to you so I will praise you for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made so I thank you Jesus for the journey the journey that you have drawn us into the journey that you have drawn us on to see a beauty of your body that transcends the tribal to taste the goodness of your glory that brings us to healing To breathe the wind of your grace and to give as we receive. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. I feel like the Lord is bringing us back to a simplicity of the purity of the gospel again. And it feels like everything that we have formalized is coming back to just be easier. I was in uh, Morton, Illinois a few weeks ago and I was sitting in a Cracker Barrel because God can even move in a Cracker Barrel. There's a Muslim man sitting across from me, he and his wife, she's got a burqa on so I can tell he's Muslim. I'm having an important conversation with a pastor who's going through a lot and uh, this conversation was really, really a priority conversation and in the middle of this important conversation, this Muslim man looks at me and goes, are you a doctor? And uh, I go, no, why do you ask? He says, because I see doctors wearing those shoes all the time. It's interesting. I, just, I say, you see a lot of doctors? And he goes, yeah, I have to go to the hospital a lot. And I said, why are you in the hospital all the time? He says, because I was in a car accident nine months ago, and my back was broken in a number of places, so I have to go in for physical therapy. And I just got out of the hospital again. He says, I just saw your shoes, and I thought, mm-hmm. uh, maybe you're a doctor. Well, that's the point in time where I would, I would make a scene, Right? I asked him, I said, are you in pain now? And he goes, yeah, I'm always in pain. And this is the point where I get up, I go over, lay hands on him, we see God do something really amazing, you know, while I hand the phone to uh, the pastor so he can take video of it, so we can document this for the ministry website, right? Because it's, you know, really all about the ministry website, right? And I hear the Lord say, and this never happened to me before, but I've been talking about this simplicity. I feel like the Lord has just taken us back to this simple place. And it's what I, I feel the Lord say to my heart. Bill, your priority right now is to have a conversation with this pastor. That's what I want you here for. Would you please tell this man I'm going to heal him, but just let him know it's me so that when he gets healed, he'll know who to thank. Now, that's like instant download, right? And I'm thinking to myself, you mean I don't get to get up and make a scene out of this, right? And so I say, listen, uh, Jesus Christ is going to heal you. And I just thought I'd tell you that so that when your back pain goes away, you'll know who to thank, okay? And he looks and goes, okay. So he gets up to leave, he and his wife do, and as he gets up, he's walking kind of sideways and slow, so I know he's in a lot of pain. And I'm just kind of shaking my head, thinking, why am I letting this opportunity pass by? This is not the formula. And uh, so I go back to talking to this pastor, and the pastor suddenly goes, hey, Bill, Look outside. And we look outside, and this guy is walking behind the cars in the parking lot, and he's pacing like this, and he's turning, twisting, and bends down and touches his toes, and looks at his looks at his wife, and goes goes like this. Goes. So now I think, ah, this is the moment he's going to come back in and testify, and then we'll you know we'll have a testimony service, and this is woo revival starts. No, he doesn't. He gets in the car and he leaves. And in my heart, this is what I say to God. I ought to be honest with you and say, this is what I said. I said, God, that was horrible evangelism. <laughs> like, that was a bad idea. And I felt the Lord say this, strong as I've ever heard. It sounded like my dad. Say, do you think I only heal people as an evangelism tool, Bill? I heal people because I love them, Period. And he said, you trust that I can reveal myself to this man? You did exactly what I asked you to do. He knows who healed him. I'll take it from here. Okay? This is the phrase that came to mind. Back when I was a kid and growing up in South Dakota, we had dangerous fireworks. Not the normal kind that you get in other parts of the United States. South, of, South Dakota fireworks are like sticks of dynamite. And on every firework, I remember growing up, were four words, the only instructions that you needed on every firework. Light fuse, get away. Yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and I feel like these days, these days what the Lord is telling me when it, to, when it comes to healing, salvation, evangelism, and all that is make the introduction and then back up, okay? like. Yeah, you'll disciple them. You'll disciple them. You'll build relationship with them. But trust me, I'm going to do the work here, right? And so I feel like these days when it comes to like praying for healing, it's like that. Light fuse and get away. And I think part of that, what the Lord is doing is basically he's firmly committed to the death of our ego. And everything in us that would want to try to take the credit for, he just wants to go, you know, I just want the glory for this. Can you just make the introductions and back up for a second so that we can have an explosion of goodness here, and then you can come in and do some discipling. How about that? That'll make you feel good, Bill. And I'm starting to realize he's stripping all of my methodology away to the simplicity of Christ himself, and uh, it's increasing my trust and my gratitude for his goodness. Put your hand over your heart. Father, I pray right now that you would make yourself real to us on a level that's deeper than we've ever known. God, I thank you for your goodness that's exploding in our heart. Lord, I pray that tonight that there would be like a fuse lit on the inside of us that we would desire more than we have ever desired, to taste of the goodness that we always have had access to. God, that we would not be the elder brother, but that we would hear your voice say, all I have is yours. And it's yours now. It's yours now. So thank you, Jesus, that healing is ours. Salvation is ours. Grace is ours. Your faith flowing into our lives is ours, God. Every promise that you have for us is yes and amen in you. Thank you, Jesus, for your goodness. Now reach your hand out. Put a hand on the shoulder of the person next to you. Yeah. And I want you to say just a simple prayer over them tonight. Just ask God to continue to ignite within them a freshness of the oil of intimacy. Yeah. God let that oil of intimacy pour through the body, pour through the church. God <laughs> whoo God, we desire that relationship of closeness, no distance and separation that every veil that religion has put over our eyes comes down now. Every veil that religion has placed between us and you goes away. Thank you, Jesus, for for drawing us close, for drawing us close, for drawing us close, for drawing us close. Thank you, Jesus, that nothing will cause you to turn away from the one to turn away from the One, to turn away from the One. So Just say, Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for finding me. Thank you, Jesus, for saving me. Thank you, Jesus, for healing me. Thank you, Jesus, that it's all because of your love. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, Jesus, that my identity is not in my sin. But my identity is in my Savior. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Just give Him praise tonight. Amen. Amen.
0: Hallelujah. You can be seated for just a moment.